Welcome to this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain Educational Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Moreno Hay, Program Director of Orofacial Pain at the University of Kentucky. In today's podcast, I have the pleasure to introduce you to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ian Boguero. He is the Director of Psychological Services and Director of Research at the University of Kentucky Orofacial Pain Clinic. He completed his undergraduate education at UCLA and obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Kentucky with a graduate certificate in biostatistics. After his PhD, he completed a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at Cincinnati's Children's Hospital Medical Center. And we were very lucky to be able to recruit him here at the College of Dentistry, University of Kentucky. Dr. Ian Boguero is a prolific researcher, and we have invited him today to learn more about the relationship of pain and fatigue. Dr. Boguero, thank you so much for joining us again uh, in this educational podcast by the American Academy for Facial Pain. It's great to have you again. Thank you. I am very curious, Dr. Boguero, among, uh, in the field of chronic pain, why, where did your interest for fatigue stems from? Well, so I'm a clinical psychologist, and when I started working at the Orofacial Pain Clinic, I thought that I would be really helping people manage their pain. So I was really thinking of pain as this physiological symptom that people experience, but Early on, I started realizing, um, like Dr. Okison says, that pain is not a sensation, it's an experience, right? And it's not just one thing that, it's not something that people feel, but it influences how they experience life, right? And part of this experience of pain that patients were telling me about always included fatigue. So patients oftentimes would say things like, I'm just sick and tired of being so sick and tired, or I just feel like I'm tired all the time. So I started hearing over and over again from patients that fatigue was really an integral part of the experience of chronic pain. And even though we know a lot about pain and how that looks physiologically, we still don't understand nearly as much about the fatigue component. So I started getting really interested in fatigue as it relates to this experience that uh, we call chronic pain. That's really interesting. Um, and it probably doesn't necessarily only apply to chronic pain patients and people in our audience that feel as well that fatigue, that tiredness. So how is fatigue defined? Who, who will qualify for fatigue? So that's actually a really, really tricky question. And um, it, people have been asking that question for a long, long time. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between two things that can be called fatigue. So one of the things is localized fatigue. So this is the kind of tiredness that we feel when we exert a muscle. So if we go to the gym and we lift some weights, we know that our muscles feel tired afterwards, or maybe we feel tired all over after we've ran or 
done some very strenuous exercise, right? But that is really closely tied to our activity levels. When we're really active, we feel that fatigue. And similarly, when we rest, that fatigue tends to go away. So that's very acute. You, it, it may be localized to specific muscle groups, but that kind of fatigue, um, we have good explanations for. We know about physiologically what happens in the muscles when you exert them. We know that there's depletion of ATP and resources when we exert ourselves too much. So that's one type of fatigue. And when people say that they're tired, a lot of times they're feeling that type of fatigue. And, and, and that type of fatigue is common to everybody. It's not just a chronic pain patient. Most people, if they exercise too much, they're going to feel tired. So I call that type of fatigue localized fatigue. Um, and that's very different than the type of fatigue that um, chronic pain patients oftentimes report experiencing. When I'm talking about th this other type of fatigue, I'm talking about what I call generalized fatigue. <clears throat> and that's not just, I, I, I'm not making that up. That's um, how it's described in the literature. And it's just described as a persistent, overwhelming feeling of tiredness. So that's how I would define that kind of fatigue, as a persistent, overwhelming feeling of tiredness. And unlike the other type of fatigue, that may not be really tied to um, exertion levels. It's just a feeling that's always there, almost like a sensation of just being tired all the time. And likewise, it's not always alleviated with rest. So chronic pain patients can have a really good night of sleep, but that fatigue is just a part of their experience the next day just as much. So I think it's important to differentiate that acute kind of localized fatigue from the more generalized um, chronic fatigue. So in this experience that our chronic pain patients are having, in what way does this fatigue component impact the life of these orofacial pain patients? I think it has a very profound impact on people's lives. And what patients say often say is that when it comes to their day-to-day -day experience, it's actually the fatigue that's most impactful a lot of the time because it's the fatigue that's really making them feel like they don't have the energy to get out of bed. Um, when, when patients are in pain, doing things that um, pain-free people do just feels like it takes a lot more effort. So things like socializing with friends or being around other people or paying attention to things for extended periods of time. All of those things are really difficult when you're hurting and they're even more difficult than that when there's also this pervasive generalized fatigue always there. So I think the fatigue influences the activities people do. I think it influences the way people cognitively are functioning. I think it influences um, their feelings of sleepiness throughout the day. And I really think it influences how well they're able or not able to interact with other people. 
Because for most of us, interacting with people takes some kind of energy, right? We have to regulate what we say. We have to regulate how we present ourselves. And oftentimes when we feel we don't have the energy to do that, those social relationships oftentimes become very disruptive as well. So when a patient presents with uh, those symptoms or reports, those sort of experiences, what do you say to someone that tells you that they are tired all the time? There's a few things that I say to them. The first thing I say to them is that um, I, I understand that this is part of the experience. And the reason why I say that is because there's evidence that suggests that even though fatigue might be one of the most impactful and problematic symptoms of this pain experience, it's also one of the least asked about by medical professionals. And I think oftentimes just telling patients, yeah, I get it. You know, I understand that you're feeling this way. Um, that can be a really validating statement. Also, when I hear uh, patients say that they're tired all the time, I always like to follow up that question with what does your tiredness feel like to you? Because we're starting to understand more and more that even though we think of fatigue as this one thing, it actually manifests quite differently in different people. Uh, so in some people, fatigue might manifest with some more of the cognitive symptoms, like feeling they can't concentrate, uh, have difficulty sustaining attention, have really challenging uh, times planning complex tasks. Whereas in other people, it's not so much the cognitive aspects of it, but it might be more of the emotional or the social aspects, like the regulating conversations, talking to other people, smiling when people might say things that you don't quite think are funny, but you want to show that you understand their intentions. All those nuanced social interactions, maybe for some people, fatigue really manifests in that way. And for other people, it manifests physiologically, just feeling achy all over, low energy, um, feeling like muscles are just tired and uh, sore all the time. And we're starting to learn more and more that these different fatigue subtypes are actually correlated with different pain outcomes. They're not all exactly the same. So when people say, I'm tired all the time, I always say, first, I get it. And second, what does that really feel like to you? Because I think that that's really informative to know how it's manifesting for any one particular person. That's that's very, very interesting. And, and as you mentioned, medical providers might not routinely ask for fatigue. Is that something that you would recommend all of us to start questioning our patients about? Is there a specific assessment tool that can be used or just having that open conversation with the patient can give us enough information to for our diagnosis? There are specific assessment tools, but I don't necessarily think you have to use a formal assessment. Um, when you have a when you have a symptom that's as impactful as fatigue, and it's such an integral part of some of our patient's experience, 
and you ask about pain and you ask about headaches and you ask about um you know occlusal contact and all these things that we regularly ask about in orofacial pain but we don't touch on the one that's really driving a lot of these down the line outcomes i think we're missing something so in you know if you're really interested you could use formal assessments but I think even in the absence of formal assessments, just asking patients about fatigue will be very validating to patients and it will give you credibility as a provider. In my experience, it does at least. When I have that conversation with patients, oftentimes patients are very appreciative that I brought that up and they acknowledge that that's not something they routinely get asked about. So I think that that's a good place to start. If if you are interested in assessing it, um, there's a few um, scales that are really good for that. The multidimensional fatigue symptom inventory can really touches on these really different and distinct fatigue subtypes. Uh, the patient reported outcome measurement information system, the PROMIS, has a four-item fatigue screener that just um, assesses overall fatigue and those are all publicly available measures um, so so those might be some tools you can use but like i said i don't necessarily think you necessarily have to do that i think the more more important thing is just having that be part of the conversation you have with your patients when i think about fatigue the first thing that comes to my mind you didn't sleep well you didn't get a good restorative night of sleep. So I wanted to ask you if fatigue is part of a natural um, phenomenon that occurs when we don't sleep, or, or is it chronic pain? And, and how are those things interrelated, or can they be teased apart? So I think when you don't sleep well, it's natural that you feel tired afterwards. So, and, and this isn't just for chronic pain patients. We, we all know how we feel when we don't sleep. <laughs> it's not a good feeling and it's very fatiguing. And sometimes that fatigue lasts throughout most of the next day, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. definitely not sleeping well contributes to the experience of fatigue. But I don't think that they're the same things. I think fatigue is more than just not sleeping well. And in fact, in some conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, the, the fatigue in those conditions is characterized by being unrelated to sleep. So you have those patients report that they sleep, uh, even when they sleep well, the fatigue is always present. So, yes, they might be related for most people, fatigue and sleep, but they're not one in the same thing. And we can try to differentiate them. We can try to say how much of this experience of fatigue is due to not sleeping well. And there's a couple ways we can do that. Um, one of the ways is to see what changes when people sleep better. But statistically, we can run models and we can say, you know, we know this much um, there's this much overlap between poor sleep and fatigue, what happens when we take that overlap away? And we find that when we remove the overlap 
of fatigue with poor sleep, fatigue is still predicting a whole host of negative pain outcomes down the line above and beyond just what's associated with sleep. Now, having said that, I do think sleeping better can help a little bit, but like I said, it's, there's more to it than just sleep. Fascinating. On those studies that you were alluding, Dr. Boguero, uh, if you are able to recall, um, how was that sleep being assessed? Was it like a self-reported, uh, maybe poor sleep? Or uh, do you know if there was any um, evidence, polysomnographic evidence, maybe looking into the different stages of sleep? So in my own work, uh, when I assess sleep, I do it uh, one of several ways. I do it with self-report measures, and I use measures like the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality um, Inventory and the Insomnia Severity Index, also some of the Promise Sleep Disturbance and Sleep-Related Impairment Measures. And those self-report measures um, have the, you know, the, the pattern that I told you where they're correlated with fatigue, but, but not totally overlapping with it. Now, in, in my own work, I also assess sleep another way, which is through actigraphy watches. So actigraphy watches are these devices people wear, and it tracks their movements, and from the amount of movements that they have at night, we can get a pretty good sense of how they're sleeping. And we find... Uh, weaker associations actually between some of the actigraphic measures and self-reported fatigue. And we also find that when we control for what people think of as these more objective markers of sleep, we also find that that does not fully explain fatigue. In fact, it does so less than the self-report measures, which I think is a really interesting point. And I think what that su suggests is that we tend to think of fatigue as this objective experience, um, but it's not. It's totally a subjective, self-reported experience, right? And when I, when I say we tend to think of fatigue as an objective experience, what I mean is people for a long time have asked, what are we running out of, right? What, what is it that we're running out of that causes us this feeling of tiredness? And people have been asking this question for hundreds of years. Uh, Thorndike, a psychologist in the early 1900s, talked about fatigue like a battery being depleted, right? Where you use the juice of the battery and then once you charge it, you gain some of that back. So there's all these depletion ideas that make fatigue sound like this objective thing that becomes depleted with use. And we know now that that's not the case. We've looked at all kinds of biomarkers, not myself, but other people have. Blood glucose, brain glucose, oxygen, ATP, um, different uh, metabolites of muscle function. None of those are correlated with this systemic uh, fatigue experience, this generalized fatigue experience that I talked about earlier. So I, I don't think we can think of fatigue as this sub uh, of the we can't think of fatigue as this objective thing where something is getting objectively depleted. 
I, I think of it more like an emotion, and I think that that might be part why the self-report measures correlate better with it than some of these more objective, actigraphic, and polysomnographic um, markers of sleep. Is fatigue maybe another way of thinking about depression? You mentioned prior symptoms like not wanting to get out of bed or not having the energy. And what about stress? Uh, when people are under a lot of stress, is that another way of, uh, you know, of, of presenting depression or, or stress? That's such a fascinating question. That's so, so interesting. And when we look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what in the United States we use to diagnose depression and also in the ICD, uh, one of the diagnostic criteria for depression is feeling low energy and fatigue, right? So there's some diagnostic overlap between how we define depression and how we're defining fatigue and we're using the same things to in, in both so there is some overlap there but like i said i don't necessarily think that that means they are one in the same thing um nor do i think stress is fatigue i think both of those things depression anxiety stress all of those can contribute to how fatigued people are feeling, but they are not the same thing. In fact, we see very severe fatigue in people who don't otherwise have symptoms of depression. And we see some people who have symptoms of depression but don't report fatigue, right? Because you don't necessarily need to have a depression diagnosis. We also know that when we statistically control for things like depression, and stress, there's really not that much overlap with, with self-reported fatigue. And we know that fatigue still predicts the same things the same way, whether we control for depression and stress statistically or not. So again, I think all both of those things contribute to the experience people are reporting, but I think it would be incorrect to say that they are fundamentally the same thing. What we do know, and this is really interesting to me uh, about depression, is that depression changes motivation. And one of the really compelling conceptualizations of fatigue is that it's not necessarily only a biological phenomenon, it's also a motivational one. So fatigue is defined by in, in, the, in some of these models, either by a lack of motivation to start things or by an active motivation not to do things, right? And, and in some ways, you can conceptualize depression similarly. But like I said, uh, that just means that they look similar. It doesn't mean that they're the same things. I, I don't think that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and and you've been mentioning about you know how they might look similar, but they are different. So, what are the different types of fatigue, and and why does it matter to to make those distinctions? That depends on who you ask. Uh, what we um, when 
we look at the literature, a lot of this work comes from cancer, the cancer literature and cancer-related fatigue. And fatigue is really prevalent not only in chronic pain, but also in cancer and multiple sclerosis and obviously chronic fatigue syndrome, lupus. There's all these conditions, a lot of them autoimmune conditions that are associated with fatigue as one of the really prevalent problematic symptoms. So in the cancer literature, which is where a lot of the fatigue work has been done, people think of fatigue as having either four or five subtypes depending on who you're asking and what measure they're using. But the ones that are more consistent across measures are the physiological part of fatigue, things like having achy muscles, soreness, loss of energy, um, right? Things that really influence how fatigue is felt in the body. And that appears to be distinct from the cognitive aspects of fatigue, like ability to concentrate, sustain attention, plan complex tasks. So you have physical fatigue, you have cognitive fatigue, and then you have in a lot of these models, social or emotional fatigue, which is just the energy that it takes to be around other people. Uh, a lot of times socializing just feels very exhausting. And I think a lot of us can relate to, for example, if you've ever been on an interview or an important phone call, you get off of that and you're like, oh gosh, <laughs> I'm glad that's done with. And you actually feel kind of tired after that, right? Mm -hmm. There's that social part of fatigue. One thing that patients will often tell me is that when they're hurting or when this pain experience is really present, they just feel like they're a lot more irritable with people. They just can't stand minor nuances that otherwise they would have been able to tolerate. Um, so that's part of the social aspect of fatigue. So those three subtypes are usually consistent. Some models also talk about a sleep-related fatigue subtype, which I think makes a lot of conceptual sense, and that would be the part of fatigue that actually is due to uh, lack of sleep or poor sleep. So what are the long-term consequences of being tired all the time? So this is a question that my team is actively looking into because in the long term, we don't have a lot of this data in chronic pain patients specifically or fatigue specifically. What I think and what I, you know, this is not totally evidence-based, but it's based more on conversations I've had with patients, is I think people who are fatigued all the time in the long term uh, may experience negative social outcomes primarily, where they'll just not want to hang out with people or they'll want to come home early or they, they just won't want to do these social interactions. And over time, I think social circles may really experience a big hit in the long term. We also know that fatigue is one of the stronger predictors of disability and pain-related interference with daily activities. 
So in, in fact, in some work, it predicts that stronger than pain intensity does. So we know that if this fatigue persists over time, people are more likely to have missed days at work, more likely to um, experience a lot of these negative consequences that ultimately will be will lead to, to worse outcomes down the line. And I would assume then that there's also a correlation between fatigue and reported quality of life. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. So we, I actually published a study in 2016 where we looked at uh, satisfaction with life in several hundred patients with chronic orofacial pain. And the strongest predictor of satisfaction with life was fatigue. Stronger than pain intensity, stronger than depression, stronger than poor sleep, stronger than anything. Fatigue was the one that was most highly correlated with satisfaction with life. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a significant proportion of our patients who experience fatigue as part of their chronic pain experience, and again, not everyone with chronic pain experiences this kind of fatigue, but for those who do and who experience it intensely, it's a really problematic symptom. One of the things that I'm looking at now, and in fact, um, we're just collecting data from our final participant now, is I'm working with collaborators in Cincinnati Children's Hospital with Dr. Chris King, and we're looking at how fatigue is influencing outcomes in young adults with chronic pain. Because when you think of young adulthood, like 18 to 30-year-olds, one of the things, you know, a lot of things happen in that period. So people are usually having their first jobs and graduating high school, maybe getting married, maybe starting a family, maybe going to college, maybe forming all these important social things that really set you up for the next part of your life and for the rest of your life. I mean, what happens between your, when you're 18 and you're 30 can be really important for your functioning later on down the line. What, what we're looking at is how fatigue is impacting chronic pain patients and who are 18 to 30 specifically, because if fatigue is keeping young adults from doing these things that have these important implications for later functioning, that could be really detrimental. So I think not only it's a question of for who is fatigue important, but also when is fatigue most disruptive. And I think we need to learn that information because there may be possibilities of targeting treatment in those areas of development that may predict later functioning down the line. That brings to my mind another question. Is fatigue somewhat age-dependent? We tend to have this conception that when you're younger, you have much more energy, but as you grow older, you're going to be having less and less energy and therefore being fatigued. What, what do you think about that? So I think yes and no to some extent. So again, I, I, it's important to, I think, differentiate the acute from the systemic fatigue. So I think as people age, their stamina can decrease. So they may get tired faster. Instead of doing 100 reps at a gym, they might get tired after 80 or 70. 
And we see age-related changes in those kinds of fatigue. You just can't, you can't exert yourself the same way when you're 80 as you could when you're 20. In fact, I've recently found out you can't exert yourself the same way when you're 36 as you could when you're 30. <laughs> um, so that there's all kinds of age-related things for the the gener for the acute localized fatigue. It's not as clear that this systemic overwhelming sense of fatigue changes with age. And the reason why I say that that's not clear is because it's really, really hard, you know, as a general trend, as people get older, they're more likely to have um, other medical conditions come up. So diabetes, heart disease, all, you know, all a host of medical conditions, their prevalence also increases with age, and our bodies just are not necessarily the same when as we grow older. So it's not clear from the literature that there's any change in fatigue after you account for change in medical status. And that's a really important distinction to make, but also a really challenging one. So I don't think we know as much about this persistent, overwhelming feeling of tiredness as much as we know about what happens with the acute localized fatigue. When we talk about chronic pain conditions, is fatigue similar to all chronic pain conditions or are there any disorder-specific relationships? That's a great question. And it's also something we're actively looking at. So there's some conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, where fatigue not only is a hallmark symptom of those conditions, but it also appears differently than in other conditions. For example, patients with fibromyalgia will report that fatigue is not restored with sleep, as I mentioned earlier. They'll also report, or are more likely to report, the cognitive subtype of fatigue. So this idea of the fibro fog and that the cognitively they just can't think as well as as patients with maybe other types of chronic pain conditions like chronic lower back pain or um, other conditions. So I do think that there's some evidence that there's subtype specific associations. Now, what we don't know, for example, in the context of orofacial pain is for example, a neuropathic pain different than a masticatory myofascial pain? Or is a chronic migraine, fatigue and chronic migraine different than fatigue and another kind of headache condition? There's a resolution there that we just don't have data for. You know, we haven't examined fatigue specifically in large enough populations of these really specific conditions to really answer that question. But I think that that's something that we're actively looking into. And the reason why I think that that's important is because I think it might help shed light onto the mechanisms by which certain conditions are impacting certain types of fatigue. And the more we can understand it, the better we can equip ourselves with treating it, hopefully. And that opens up my next question. So when clinically a patient presents with the symptom of fatigue, uh, what can we do for them? How can fatigue be treated? And what is going to be the prognosis for that patient? 
That's a really uh, complicated question. So just the way that pain is not only a symptom, but it's part of this experience, this chronic pain experience. I also think that fatigue is not only a symptom, but it's part of this chronic pain experience. Now, the question is, what goes into this experience of fatigue? Well, we've mentioned a lot of those things. We said poor sleep might be correlated with it. We said depression might be correlated with it, stress, pain intensity, social functioning. All of these things, I think, contribute to this persistent, overwhelming feeling of tiredness. So from a treatment standpoint, I think that to the extent that we can manage those individual pieces will help reduce fatigue. And there's evidence for that. If we get patients sleeping, even patients with long-standing chronic pain, if we get them sleeping better, their quality of life tends to improve. If we can reduce pain intensity, we see some reductions in fatigue. So I think one piece of this is treating the factors that may contribute to fatigue. That's, that's one approach. Another approach is treating fatigue itself, right? And there's psychological interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy that have been also used for fatigue. And those interventions uh, report or stud those studies that um, have tested those interventions that target fatigue symptom itself report usually moderate success. It doesn't completely take it away, but there's some reduction in fatigue. The other thing is I think we're missing an important part here, which may be diet and physical activity. So we've talked about sleep, but I think a big part of fatigue is also influenced by what we're eating and what we're doing. And there's exercise regimens that have found to be quite effective for fatigue. In fact, uh, they're as effective as some of the medications that we um, may use. So exercise, healthy diet. Um, we also know and this is really important clinically, that there's a number of medications that can contribute to fatigue as a side effect. So always checking what are the possible uh, side effects of the medications your patient is on and making sure that if there's polypharmacy involved, that that, that might not be contributing to the fatigue symptom. So. I don't think that there's an easy answer here. I think it's about looking at overall person and their overall functioning. I think it's about looking at their diet, their lifestyle, their behaviors, and also their environment. We know that there's a whole host of environmental things that can contribute to fatigue. For example, how noisy the environment is, how dark or light the environment is, how cluttered or not cluttered it is. All these environmental things might influence how people are feeling and they might all contribute to the pain experience and the fatigue experience. So overall, clinically, I think what you're doing 
or pain is going to help with fatigue a little bit. I think making sure people are receiving the appropriate mental health treatments that they need so that they can be working on the depression, the anxiety is important. And talking about diet and exercise would be really important. Having said that, um, you asked about prognosis. And what can we tell patients about long-term, what's going to happen? We uh, did a study where we recontacted patients who came into the orofacial pain clinic two to seven years later. And what we found was really, really interesting. So what we found was that two to seven years later, Patients who came in for an initial appointment at the orofacial pain clinic, uh, a subset of those patients, about a little less than a third, if I remember correctly, two to seven years later were pain-free. Pain they had zero pain at, at when we recontacted them. So we separated, we divided our uh, population into two groups, those who had zero pain, two to seven years later and those who still had pain two to seven years later, no matter how much pain they had. And what we found was that in the group who had no pain two to seven years later, their fatigue scores were also essentially near zero, uh, where in at baseline they weren't. So what that suggests to me is that with whatever interventions we have, when we can successfully treat pain, where we can successfully treat this experience that's contributing to fatigue, fatigue can also improve with time. And we see time and time again that people show improvements in fatigue when this other aspects of their pain experience also improves. So I do think it's treatable. I do think we need to have a multidisciplinary approach that would be your best bet and all of this if there's one thing that you do tomorrow differently i would say all of this starts with just asking about it or learning about what fatigue feels like in your particular patient because until we have this conversation with patients and until we get better data we just might not know the answer to that. We might not know the answer about the best treatments and the be and the prognosis because we're still thinking about pain as a symptom and not as an experience. And I think fatigue is an integral part of that experience which gets lost when we only try to treat the symptom of pain and not the experience of pain. So I definitely think talking about fatigue is critically important. Thank you, Dr. Boquero. That was very enlightening and learned a lot from it. And I can guarantee you that after our conversation, I will certainly be listening to my patients next week uh, and, and paying attention to their fatigue symptom and, and how they describe it. So I will certainly make sure that I ask them about it. I wanted before um, finishing up this uh, podcast to congratulate you for your uh, recent award by the NIH K23. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving our audience a little preview of what your work is going to be uh, about and how do you envision it may contribute to, to the field of orofacial pain? 
Sure. Thank you very much. I'm happy to talk about it. So this will be a five-year study where we'll compare two different psychological interventions for masticatory myofascial pain. And we know from a body of literature that when you have patients with masticatory myofascial pain, uh, psychological interventions plus standard dental care tends to produce better outcomes than just standard dental care alone. So we know that having the psychological part to that may be important, but we don't know in this population what's the best psychological intervention. So, you know, when we're talking psychological intervention, are we better off treating sleep or are we better off treating depression or are we better off doing a CBT intervention and targeting pain catastrophizing. We, you know, we have so many tools in psychology that we don't really know which intervention is best. And we also don't know whether any of them outperform the others. Because what happens with behavioral interventions is that you have specific treatment effects. In other words, your specific intervention works because it provides mechanism, you know, targets this mechanism that we think is helpful. But you also have non-specific treatment effects, which is maybe people just get better because they're talking to somebody. And maybe it's just the alliance and the rapport you build with the patients, and maybe it's just the patients can talk to you and they know that someone cares for them and they get the social support. So it's really hard to differentiate how much of this effectiveness of psychological interventions is due from these nonspecific things which apply to all psychological interventions to these very targeted specific things that target the mechanism you think it does. In other words, if you, for, so for example, in the clinic we have uh, what we call a physical self-regulation intervention. And we call it PSR for short. It was uh, designed by Dr. Carlson and his colleagues. And what the physical self-regulation intervention is, is it teaches people a way to relax their bodies and increase parasympathetic nervous system activity and also uh, introduces exercises specifically targeting the trigeminal region. So we think that this intervention helps masticatory myofascial pain patients by providing them greater awareness of clenching, introducing jaw relaxation exercises, and lowering sympathetic tone. But it may also produce effects by these non-specific treatment things that I just mentioned, just the rapport and having a person there and having a caring relationship with a provider, all these things. So what my research is going to do is it's going to look at how much of these outcomes that we see are due to these mechanisms that we think are changing as a result of the intervention versus how much of it is just due to these nonspecific treatment factors. And the reason why that's really, really important, I think, is because when we are able to learn about what makes interventions effective, we can increase that. We can make them even more effective later on down the line. Once we understand, right, what is it about talking to someone that leads to these changes, then 
once we know that, we can really improve the interventions we develop and that we deliver. So I think that that's going to be really enlightening, and I'm so excited to get started with this. I'm really looking forward to seeing what we find. Congratulations again, Dr. Boguero. Very well-deserved award, and thank you so much for your hard work, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.